everyone, and welcome to UpZound, a brand new weekly podcast that goes deep on just one big story from the week in urbanism, infrastructure, planning, policy, and beyond, literally anything related to the Strong Towns conversation. I'm Kia Wilson, and I'm here with our president, Chuck Marone. How are you doing today, Chuck? Hey, doing fantastic. It's a beautiful day here in central Minnesota. So thank you for, thank you for launching this, and uh, I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. So everyone tuning into this is going to be brand new to this podcast because this is our very first one. So I wanted to start us off by talking a little bit about what we're going to be doing here on UpZoned and why we decided to do it. So by way of background, and Chuck, you can weigh in on this too, um, Strong Towns, for those of you who might not know us very well yet, is a national movement for change dedicated to exploring the way we build pretty much everything in our world and supporting a better model of development that won't make the places we love go broke, unlike our current dominant development pattern. And that project requires a lot of nuance and care, right? Like we don't get to do a lot of hot takes. We don't get to keep up with the news cycle, which these days runs about as fast as you can imagine. But there are stories that cross our desk pretty often that we think are worthy, are interesting, and deserve some kind of conversation around them. And we thought, what better way to do it than you know, getting me on the podcast to invite some of my smartest friends and my most regular smart friend I'll be inviting will be you, Chuck, um, to talk those things through. We're just going to upzone one individual story each week and really do a deep dive. Does, is that a pretty good summary of what you think we're up to, Chuck? I love it. When when I first started the, the Strong Towns podcast, uh, a friend of mine, I told her about it and she goes, please don't just have it be you talking. And <laughs> it's, it winds up to be a lot of me talking and a lot of um, interviews with people. And I think the the thing that is missing is that we have such great internal conversations about a lot of these issues. So I, I think the ability to deep dive into one every week and kind of hash it over, especially, you know, you and me will be on this regularly. I think you and I, uh, even though we uh, we see eye to eye on a lot of things, also have a very different take and, and a very different perspective on things. So I'm kind of looking forward to exploring that as well. Same here. I think the, um, we should probably just dive into it because the topic that I chose for today, I chose specifically because I want to hear what you have to say about Uh-oh. it. And when I think about, <laughs> oh, sorry, no, everyone. Okay. <laughs> um, turns out I think Chuck's pretty smart. And I want to <laughs> hear what he has to say about some stuff. Um, but I'm actually coming back from vacation. I got into the St. Louis airport at about one in the morning last night. I was in the middle of New Mexico, which if anyone here is from the Southwest, you know that the Southwest has a lot of challenges with water. It's a topic of frequent conversation um, around those parts. And an article passed by us from the Texas Observer, which is a fantastic, fantastic um, outlet out of, I believe Dallas is where they're based, possibly Austin. And it was about um, the future of water infrastructure. It was called Dams and Reservoirs Won't Save Us by Zoe Slanger. We'll post a link in the description for this podcast. And it made some pretty bold and interesting claims about what dry climates like North Texas and New Mexico and beyond are going to have to do if they want to meet their water challenges for generations to come and also possibly not go broke in the process. Um, We're going to be doing a big event in North Texas in October, actually a little less than a month from today in Plano, where we're going to be talking about this stuff in more depth. If you haven't heard about that, go to strongtowns.org slash Texas dash gathering. Um, But 
I wanted to take some time today to talk with you, Chuck. So I know you've spent a good amount of time in Texas and oh, you're yeah. an engineer and planner by backgrounds. Um, to start off, how has North Texas and maybe the Southwest in general historically treated the problem of water, which is a huge problem down there? It's fascinating because it's a desert, right? And I think, you know, being here from Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes, uh, we, we take water for granted. Uh, I, I found it fascinating being there and then in Phoenix last month, um, you know, parts of Nevada as well, just how uh, undifferent, <laughs> I know that's not a word, I'm mm. trying, like how, how similar it is to the way we treat water here. Um, you know, we put these reservoirs in, uh, we run these huge pipes all over the place. Uh, we, you know, live in a sense, very similar lifestyles here in, in engineering terms and in a, you know, human terms, uh, here in Minnesota as they do in the Southwest. And these places are deserts. Um, it's always kind of shocked me a little bit because I, I, it feels like what we have done and you see this a little bit in this article too, where they quote the the number of gallons. The tip says between 100 and 140. We always used from a design process 120 gallons of water per person per day. Um, I always assumed back in my you know youthful engineering days that that was a Minnesota standard. You know, like sure Minnesotans use 120 gallons of water a day, but if you're in Phoenix or if you're you know you're in uh, you know West Texas, you're not using 120 gallons of water a day. That would be insane. Oh no, that's the way that they've sized their systems. Uh, that's the way that they have planned their infrastructure, and I think it's you know no kind of uh, surprise then that that's actually the usage rates that they see. Uh, it's a very similar system to what we have here in the water rich North. It's wild. I mean, you would think that we would be more adaptive to our local environments. Part of that is just because we move a lot in the United States by and large. Someone could move from Minnesota to Texas and they would want the same exact standard of living that they've had. Um, what has the mirroring Minnesota's style of uh, water infrastructure and water conservation when necessary in a desert climate like Texas meant for the wealth of Texas communities. How much money has this all cost them, would you think? It's really funny because our, our, our former colleague, Max uh, Azzarello, turned me on to uh, the um, Cadillac Desert book, mm -hmm. which I had never read before. Um, but I had read, you know, from an engineering standpoint, read a lot about the dam construction era. Essentially, the way we opened up vast parts of the country that weren't really usable in a modern sense uh, through our construction of dams and waterworks. When you look at the desert Southwest and large parts of Texas, um, even though these are places of rugged individualism and, you know, go it, go it alone kind of mentality. Um, life there, uh, the way we know it today, is largely made possible by huge, huge federal infrastructure projects uh, started around the time of the Great Depression and then accelerated after World War II uh, to make these places essentially function very much like places in the country where there's abundant water. Um, you know, the goal was to not only be able to irrigate these places, irrigation was kind of the gateway drug, if you want to think of it, to water policy. 
um, but to change uh, you know the way we develop so that there wouldn't be a lot of distinction between say a, a development in Minneapolis and a development in Dallas. Uh, one of the things that was remarkable to me uh, the first time I, I started visiting in Texas, and I went to visit at a cousin who lived in Phoenix. I went down there in 1996. They have grass lawns like all over the yeah, place. Right. And and it's it was kind of crazy because I wasn't expecting that. I mean, I was expecting a desert. And these places were as lush or more lush in many ways than uh, than the landscape we had here in central Minnesota. Um, largely because, you know, we have to deal with the freeze-thaw cycle. So you got lots of, you know, many months of the year where things are under snow, but then many months when things are just dead because, you know, they've dried up and and you know, we haven't had the rains yet and all that. Here, it was year-round lush green beauty. And part of that was just like the, the federal policy of we want to make these places developable. We want to make them inhabitable. And, uh, you know, we're going to go out and build this infrastructure to, to make that happen. It basically, at no cost or at extremely low cost to the, uh, to the localities. Um, that's had a huge impact on how we approach these places. And I think now that this stuff is aging, now that this stuff, uh, you know, a lot of these dams are silting in, uh, a lot of these reservoirs don't have their capacity a lot of our growth has overtaken uh, really what our you know, ultimate carrying capacity is. Um, what you see is that we just don't have the resources to keep up with this. You know, financially, this is disastrous. So in terms of what we do next, the article that we're talking about today by Zoe Slanger um, has some pretty wild and out there ideas for alternatives to dams and reservoirs and massive federally funded water infrastructure projects. And those ideas include things like, for instance, um, use doing what astronauts do and recycling our own urine. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, the headline one yeah. that I think people will gleam onto. Like, are oh, you yeah. serious? But, yeah. For sure. But some of the other ones are actually pretty wild too in more subtle ways. Um, there are aquifers underneath many parts of Texas that are full of brackish water, which is non-potable. And there's a possibility, for instance, of building a really expensive water treatment plant to make that water potable and to make it suitable for irrigation and other usage. Um, they also talk about building individual cisterns. You want to talk about rugged individualism. <laughs> you know, how many people are going to sign on for that? Do you think these that's really the future of water infrastructure in Texas? Or is there something that's more consistent with the Strongtown's approach that Texas towns should be trying? It's really interesting because one of the lines from that article that that jumped out at me uh, was this notion that you know no one's proposing building more reservoirs, and they're not proposing it because there just isn't going to be the water. Right. Most of this stuff was sized at a at a point in history, and I, I think we can you know we could get into the impacts of of climate uh, change and, and craziness and and what have you. But the reality is, uh, re regardless of how you look at that issue, you can look back throughout history and see we were in an unseasonably wet cycle when most of this stuff was built and sized and allocated. So all throughout the West, you assumed you know X level of, of water forever. And the reality is, is we're at you know 40 percent, 50 percent, 60 percent X, um, you know, very small amounts compared to that, just as a norm. Uh, before you even get into, you know, 
the, the changes in the climate and how that's going to impact this. So when you look at, to me, what I go back to is like, what were these places like before we went in and tried this huge experiment, before we pumped all this money in to try to you know, reshape the way these places built? Most places had cisterns. I mean, they would save the rainwater and they would try to make that last as long as they could. This is essentially the strategy of the cactus, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to, uh, you know, the the uh, the algae or, you know, the, the fern uh, that you see on the edge of a wetland. You know, the fern relies on there being a constant stream of water there. If I don't water my ferns, they dry up in like two days. Cactus can go for long periods of time because they store the water and they use it very slowly. I actually think what we're what we're talking about and what the article is talking about is essentially starting with the assumption that humans need 100 to 140 gallons of water per person per day. And I actually think that we need to start with the assumption that humans need a certain amount of fresh water to drink to survive per day. But then they just need, you know, a lot less water to do other things. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the whole idea of taking brackish water and making it drinkable. I think when most people maybe don't grasp about our water system is that, you know, you maybe need like three gallons, five gallons a day to live. Um, all the rest of it are for things like washing clothes, washing your car, um, you know, uh, doing all the other like just random things that we do with water, taking a shower, uh, you know, all of that stuff can use different kinds of water and different types of water. It doesn't have to be to the same standard as what you drink. The problem is we've set up the infrastructure to deliver it all at this high standard, regardless of if you're washing your car or, you know, cleaning off your driveway or watering your lawn, or if you're, you know, giving it to your toddler to drink, we treat it all to the same standard. And that's just in a desert that's just kind of silly. And I, I feel like we're going to have to move beyond that mentality if we want to do this at scale in a way that makes any sense. Absolutely. You know, I, I had a little bit of an example of that um, right in front of me over vacation. I, I drove up from Santa Fe where we were staying to Taos to actually look at some Earthships. Have you heard of Earthships before, Jack? Yeah. And Taos yeah. is amazing. I mean, it is an amazing part of the country you're in. Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, for people who don't know what Earthships are, the idea behind an Earthship is you can build a house that takes care of all of your needs passively. It's going to be heated by passive solar. Um, it's going to be cooled by windows that you can open with the pull of a uh, cord. Your walls are going to contain all of the heat and cooling you need. And their approach to water infrastructure is a little bit like what you're saying. You're going to have a pretty sophisticated water catchment system on your roof. And Taos gets between eight and 10 inches of rain annually. It's a super, super dry climate. Um, But they're able to, for the most part, produce all of the the water that they need by first um, catching it naturally, and then second, using it four times. They use it first to drink, then to do dishes. Gray water waters the plants, and then there's another set of plants outside that can be uh, used black water, actually sewage, um, untreated sewage water. Right, right. Um, 
on things that are not root vegetables. It's actually totally safe to be able to do. And it's a really inspiring idea. But one of the things that I found was kind of taken aback by when I visited this community is all of these earthships, the whole idea is that your house, only your house is going to take care of all of your needs. So what the woman at the front desk who I talked to told me was they had had a hundred year flood that year and everyone's cisterns were overflowing. All of that rainwater was just lost. It wasn't stored for the future. It wasn't approached communally, um, which I thought was really bizarre. And come summer, um, they do things like they don't wash their clothes in their home washing machine because they don't have enough water to run an inefficient old traditional washing machine. They drive into town and they do it. They're actually not meeting all of their own water needs pretty much precisely because they aren't finding ways to share it in commons. So it made me think about the limits of, you know, this technology. How do we scale it and apply uh, you know, reuse technologies um, over a larger space. I'm curious if you've seen any towns that have done that successfully. I don't, I, I think we struggle at the town level, quite frankly. Um, you know, I, I think at the neighborhood level, certainly it's been done. The, 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 the problem, when you get to, to that level, I, I think that you run into, and I'm going to describe it this way, and I don't, I don't know if this is the right way to put it. In historical terms, there's this thing called the luxury trap. And the luxury trap, I think, can be summarized by the notion that, you know, we set our expectations uh, based on, uh, you know, the, the reaching this level of luxury that we come to expect. And then that's our kind of baseline expectation from that line forward. Over time, our luxuries become our necessities, in a sense. Mm-hmm. If we were to go back to the desert Southwest of even a hundred years ago, the idea of a, a hundred gallons per person per day, you know, would have been bizarre. I mean, there was nobody living off of that, no expectation that you would receive that. And so everything from the way we designed our homes to the way we designed our infrastructure um, w- was designed around a much lower burn rate. Um what you're describing people, you know, taking their clothes and going in and washing them somewhere else and basically relying on someone else. If, even if you communally shared the water, you would have times when you ran out. Um, You know, you would have times when essentially you reached a point where uh, the, the thing that you looked at as a necessity that someone a generation ago would have looked at as a luxury um, would have forced you into, you know, basically, running short of water. To me, the answer to this problem uh, is twofold. And, and I, I say answer hesitantly because it's not really like a solution. It's just like, I think this is the way this thing resolves. First, there's gonna be a lot fewer people living in the desert. I, I just, I, I don't see any like practical way around that. Um, you know, uh, there's gonna be a lot fewer people living in the desert. And, and number two, those people are going to be using per capita a lot less water. Um, they're going to have a, a lot of things that today they look at as being uh, necessities, which I think will evolve in time to become luxuries again. My hesitation, and I think that the way that from a strong town's lens, you know, we would maybe push back on this article a little bit or some of the things put forth on this article is that there's an engineering solution to this. You know, that, that if we can just uh, 
you know, set up this system or build this huge thing or pipe water in from somewhere else um, that we can overcome these limitations. I, I think certainly we can, like the answer to that is yes, we can for a time. Uh, but again, getting back to this luxury trap argument, uh, no one a hundred years ago would have thought 120 gallons per capita per day was, was anything remotely achievable in, you know, the Phoenix area or the Western Texas area. Uh, the idea that that today is the standard that we must meet at all times, uh, you know, as you point out with Earthship, kind of kind of becomes a bizarre uh, state of state of living. I don't think it's viable over the long term. Yeah, or at least it can become a self fulfilling prophecy in a certain way. But with that said, there are ways that you can exist completely off the grid, existing on solar panels and catching eight to 10 inches of rainwater off of a roof and survive. I mean, I just don't, I don't want to make the earth strips or any of the communities in the Southwest seem like they're irredeemably hopeless. I am interested in the ways that we can creatively approach that challenge, um, both through technology and more importantly, through changing our culture, changing the way we can. Consume, changing our sort of way we think about what is worth building and what's going to be a return on our investment. That's where I think Strong Towns has a lot to say about this topic. That's not always in the common conversation because when we talk about water, we tend to talk about it as an environmental concern and not a monetary concern. And it absolutely is. Right, right. Well, actually, it's funny because before you sent me this article, I was reading uh, last this last weekend about basically business strategy looking out 10, 20, 30 years. And the article made the point that many large businesses, um, and you can think of everything from like Walt Disney operating theme parks to, uh, you know, Google using coolant systems to uh, cool server farms, uh, they are coming to grips with the reality that water is going to be a more and more scarce resource in the future. And if you're a long-term thinker, that's one of the, the kind of blinking red lights on the dashboard, uh, prompting you to start thinking differently about how you do things. I, I think when I look at, you know, a million people in the Phoenix area, I, 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 I don't know the exact population of Phoenix, but we're talking somewhere in that range. Um, you know, you, you look at this Earthship model and we can just think of it as, how do you kind of save what you've got and make good use of it? I think that that's very logical. I don't know as it scales to a population of that size. And, and that's the only, I mean, I think that's the only hesitation I have with that kind of thinking is that, all right, I get it. And I think if we were going to go and, and inhabit a desert today for the first time, uh, that's certainly knowing what we know today, the way you would approach it. Is there a transition from where we're at now to that? Boy, I maybe there is, but I don't see it. I really have a hard time recognizing how we get to that, um, you know, with without a lot of uh, social upheaval. I guess right. I'm the doom and gloom person. You give me the optimistic. <laughs> yeah, well, I was gonna say exactly something optimistic. You got my number. Um, I don't think it would be a retrofit in the way that we think of it now. I think that. Like there's something really remarkable and creative about the idea that we can start today 
building what we already have um, in a better way, in a way that asks a different set of questions. It doesn't have to look like an earthship. You don't have to be a Tao-style hippie to use some of these um, technologies that have been popularized by Tao-style hippies. Um, I was talking to my partner about... There's a house in Webster Groves, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis that uses a lot of these same water cashment um, technologies in a house that looks like every other single house on the block. Um, it can be folded into our model creatively and subtly and incrementally over time. Um, and that just was because two individual owners who are doctors at, I think, Washu or Burns Jewish around here, um, decided that they wanted to live this way. They decided that they... You know, yeah, they wanted to produce some of their electricity on the other column um, through solar panels, but there's some unsexy things like insulating your house properly that can also reduce your electricity consumption. Um, there's just quiet things, choices that we can make and that we can influence our neighbors to make that I think would be really go a long way. And could I think you're right in a sense. I'm going to gently push back on one aspect when it comes to water and okay. specifically you look out the front of your house and you see a fire hydrant. Um, understand that, you know, if you live in a major metropolitan area, that's a 12, 14 inch pipe under the ground. Um, even if you live in like a suburb, it's right. an eight or 10 inch pipe under the ground, hundreds of gallons of water just in front of your place, thousands of gallons of water in your neighborhood sitting in an underground pipe. All of that is, 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 uh, treated to a drinkable standard. In other words, you can go out and, and turn yes. on that fire hydrant or open up your faucet or whatever, and you can drink that water. A very, very tiny, tiny percentage of it will actually be drunk. Most of it will be used in, in ways that I think we would consider frivolous or ways that you, know, you could use water treated to a much lower standard for. That gives us an enormous amount of opportunity because we're wasting resources in a, in a massive way. But understand, retrofitting that pipe uh, to do something different. I mean, we've talked a lot about Flint, Michigan, and how Flint is struggling. That's the yeah. essential problem they have. I mean, they they have essentially a toxic water system delivering you know water to to their residences, and retrofitting that entire system for something that is going to work better is massively expensive. That's the th that to me right. is like the underlying problem is that. You know, we've built this infrastructure, billions of dollars of infrastructure. And, and, you know, in a city like Phoenix, it's hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure. And uh, it's the wrong infrastructure. You know, I, I, do we replace right. it? Do we abandon it? Do we repurpose it? None of those things are going to be cheap or easy. And, and I, I think that that is like the ultimate burden underlying all of this. But you had an idea in your article about Flint that really blew my mind, which is that we leave the toxic pipes in Flint in the ground and we don't retrofit them. But then we build PVC that will not poison residents, um, that can be serviced locally by residents, that we can develop a training program that won't require like endless, endless hours of certification for people to actually get the drinking water they need rather than trying to rip all of those pipes out of the ground and put in brand new ones that can deliver drinkable water to 
yeah. firefighters when they that they're yeah. going to squirt all over a house. Um, those sort of solutions are really exciting to me um, as someone who, you know, I personally approach a lot of this stuff with Flint from a social justice lens, and it can be kind of scary sometimes as someone who also cares a lot about how our cities are financed to hear someone say we have a choice. We can have potable drinking water for the citizens of Flint and we can have massive debt to make that happen, or we can let people die and not have debt. And there's a middle path. There's another choice that I think Strong Towns is the only voice I've heard talking about that stuff. And it's why I'm so excited to work here. And I'm so excited to see what we do in Texas in October. It's going to be really fun to apply that kind of creative thinking to that place. I I agree. And I think that, you know, whether it's Flint or whether it's the Southwest, I I think the both of it boils down to kind of two concepts. One, making better use of the water you have on hand. Um, and, and I think two, just from a almost an engineering standpoint, is treating water that you drink differently from water that you use in other ways. Um, and, and those have been things we've not been interested in doing, but I, I think, you know, we're at the point where those are really viable strategies and they can be viable economically too. Absolutely. So that's pretty much our podcast. I did want to end with a little segment I, uh, more on the urban planning funds, would like to call Downzoned, which is where we talk just a little bit about what we've been reading and we don't have to talk about our big story. Let's just say, Chuck, what have you been reading lately, watching lately, listening to on podcasts lately that has inspired you? It doesn't have to do with Oh, no, that's great. I actually, um, I just finished the three-part Robert Galbraith series, also J.K. Rowling. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you read her three fiction books. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Her adult fiction ones? No, um, I haven't. It's, a, it's amazing because I thought, you know, the Harry Potter series was incredible. I mean, just some of the best fiction writing I've ever read. Um, but you know, you, you're kind of like, well, you know, did she have this great idea? And like, no, she is a fantastic writer. Oh my gosh. Um, her three like adult mm-hmm. fiction books, the, uh, the kind of just the, uh, private investigative series, uh, is so good. Just so well-written, just really incredible. Um, yeah. but I've been reading this book called resilience, why things bounce back. I've had it on my bookshelf for years and, uh, it's just kind of sat there and I said, it's about time I read this book. And oh my gosh, I feel bad for having waited so long. It's um, very insightful. Mm. How about you? That sounds great. Um, well, mine actually is a little Strong Towns related because I'm a nerd who takes books like this on vacation. I read um, Adonia E. Lugo's book, Bicycle Slash Race, which is about the intersections between um, anti-racist work and bicycle infrastructure work. Um, But honestly, the thing that I found most interesting about that book kind of was like one notch to the center of the book's core thesis. Um, She talks about this thing we talk about a lot at Strong Towns in the biking movement. There is a dichotomy between people who think that the only answer to making biking safer is to install a ton of um, bike bike exclusive infrastructure on our streets right now, all at once from the top down. And every bike needs to get off of the street that's shared with cars. And if not, there's going to be a massacre. Um, The other side of the dichotomy is people who say there should be no infrastructure for bikes whatsoever. We should just train every bicyclist to... Mm -hmm. Yes, vehicular cycling is sort of the buzzword around that. And there's lots of people who sort of orbit around that side of the spectrum. Um, She talks about something called human infrastructure, which I thought was really interesting. And it's kind of a third path. She talks about how um, 
she's specifically talking about communities of color who um, large transformative bicycle infrastructure is disruptive to their communities often, causes some residential displacement, um, and who don't always necessarily have the resources to go and take like a league of, like an LCI, League of um, American Cyclists certification course on how to drive their bike. Um, So what she talks about is simple things like like creating a culture around biking that is mutually supportive, giving lights to people who don't have them (laughs) and um, perhaps paying someone who is fixing neighborhood kids for um, bikes for neighborhood kids um, for free because those kids don't necessarily have access to it. Those are some simple examples of what she's talking about, but it made me think about all of sort of the intangible ways and all the things, options we have besides transformative top-down development and every man for himself, like strap on the Kevlar yeah. vest and get on your cruiser the bike incremental right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I would love to read that. Yeah, it's, it was interesting. It does, I mean, one of the things that I discovered early on in Strong Towns, because, you know, I came from an engineering background, so I, I did kind of have an engineering-esque approach to uh, to cycling infrastructure. And oh my gosh, I found that those two different camps exist and they hate each other. Like they, they hate each they really other. Do. Like the I am traffic people really hate the bike lane people and vice versa. They just do not get along. <laughs> I, I, I do think that, you know, the concept you're talking about is a fascinating one because we do need a way to, uh, like you say, not go in and kind of impose uh, our ethics from an engineering standpoint of what, you know, here's how you should bike, Um, but kind of start with a more humble approach. Like what are people doing today? How do they get around? And what you find particularly in poor neighborhoods is that people have hacked all this stuff. You know, I mean, they, they have to bike because they don't have other Mm -hmm. modes of transportation. And so when you go and actually talk to them Mm -hmm. and observe and say like, you know, where do you struggle? Um, all kinds of things come to the fore that otherwise wouldn't. So what a fantastic book. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping I can get her on the podcast That'd or be wonderful. the site at some point. I'm thinking about ways to do it. So, all right. Well, this has been Upzoned. Thank you so much for tuning in. And um, if you haven't already, be sure to check out strongtowns.org slash Texas dash gathering for information about our North Texas gathering. Take care. See you next week.